Brin to race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. They have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. A secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Build a town, build it fast. We don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this... you can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. This is a matter of life and death. But I can perform this miracle. World War II would be over. Our boys would come home. That's happening, isn't it? The world will remember this day. Our work here will ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Until somebody builds a bigger one. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. Truman needs to know what's next. Two. What's next? One. Welcome back to the Film 89 podcast. This is episode 101. I'm Sky, and joining me tonight is a master cinephile making his long overdue return to Film 89. Last time he was on here, way back on episode 47, he co-hosted an episode on Michael Mann's Manhunter. And tonight, he and I are going to be giving you our analysis and spoiler-filled review of Christopher Nolan's three-hour-long biopic of J. Robert Oppenheimer. It's our good friend, Matthias van der Roost. Matthias, welcome back to Film 89, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I didn't realize that was that long ago. I feel like that was maybe two years ago, the other episode. That was mid-2020. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's so, been three years now. That, that was kind of back in the dark times, back when yeah. uh, you know, we couldn't interact with each other. And ugh. You know what's weird about that? It almost feels like it didn't happen. Like, yeah. it, it, so much, when we were in it, it felt really long, and now it just feels like, did that really happen even? Yeah. Like, it's weird. And unbelievably, this is the first time you and I have ever recorded. Yes. And and we'll, we'll chat on WhatsApp uh, on an almost weekly basis. Sure. And, you know, that's been going on for a couple of years now. And then even before that, we were in touch via Twitter. But this is the first time mm-hmm. you and I have managed to record together. There's been so many kind of mooted episodes you and I were going to do. I think 
crikey, three years ago, before you even did Manhunt, I think you and I were talking about doing a Ben, Her and Spartacus episode. And then and Bill, you know, he's been saying for a while that you and myself and him and, and Steve should do a To Live and Die in LA episode, which yes. we're going to do at some point, 100%. But before, I guess, we discuss Christopher Nolan's latest, let's discuss this crazy Frankenstein's monster of a phenomenon <laughs> that is Barbenheimer. Yes. Now you are one of one of the people that's um that's, that's followed suit and you've seen both films, yeah? Yes, yeah, they got to me. Like I'm normally one of those people that like I'll see a whole bunch of ads, especially on YouTube, right? Uh, but it mostly that's for products that I don't need or want anyways. And so when it's like a movie trailer uh, or something like this, uh, it's it's more <laughs> targeted towards me, I guess. But it it was so. So much of it was on Twitter, and I kept seeing it. And I guess uh, it, it got to me. They got me. How, how did this even come about? Because the first I knew of it, I saw a couple of really well-made posters. And if Tony Stell is listening to this, he probably going to be grinding his teeth. But <laughs> some of these posters I saw, given the fact that they were probably knocked up at short notice, yeah, they were quite inventive. And whoever was the first person, you know, the kind of patient zero that came up with this idea, fair play to them. Well, do you think it, it was as organic as that? Or because it seems to me like maybe this is just some uh, some stealth marketing, like some some astroturfing going on. Do you think the big studios are smart enough to come up with something like this where they pay two films, which are just mm-hmm. diametrically opposed in terms of the tone and the subject matter, and yet somehow, because they were both released on the same date, you've mm-hmm. got these two films, you know, both of which were made by very well-respected directors, but are totally different in terms of what they are. Yet, they formed this really bizarre double bill. Well, I think, I mean, what I read about that is that that Warner Brothers purposely programmed this movie uh, to kind of sabotage Christopher Nolan because he did Oppenheimer for a different studio after they dumped uh, Tenet on streaming pretty much right away in 2020 or whenever that came out. Back in 2020, Christopher Nolan wanted Tenet to be right. theatrical only for a longer period of time. Sure. But Warner Brothers, yeah, they dumped it on HBO Max, I think, within maybe three months or less. Yeah, it was like, I think, after a couple of weeks, yeah. maybe. Or, yeah. Now, Nolan was, you know, not happy about that at all. So then he's parted ways with Warner Brothers, which is a shame because, you know, made so many films together. But he now has released this film. This is Universal, isn't it? Yes. And then obviously Warner Brothers then, in order to kind of maybe you know, stick one to Christopher Nolan, have scheduled Barbie to be released on the same day. But it's kind of, you know, it's worked in the favour of both films in a way that I I just don't think the studios could have predicted. I don't think this is, you know, a marketing ploy on their behalf because you'd have two competing studios. You know, would they? It just, the very idea of it just seems like, because both films are so vastly different, some genius, I just think, has come up with it. Well, let's just match these two things together, two things which are which totally totally don't go, and let's make them work. You know, some of those posters, you know, the initial ones, I, I thought, you know, they, they do look really good. And, yes. you know, the whole idea is so absurd. Until I saw some recent reviews from some trusted sources and, and heard word of mouth about Barbie, I was actually thinking, yeah, you know, this film actually could be something I have no doubt. And, crikey, I've lost track of how long it's been out for now. Has it been a week or...? Uh, they well, they both came out. It was last Friday, think, wasn't it? Yeah, last week. Yeah, because they, I saw Barbie on Wednesday and I saw Oppenheimer the next. Yeah, day. of course. I think it was. Um, I think it was in the UK. It was Friday the twenty first, and Barbie has been a massive hit. I think it's the you know it's got the biggest opening weekend. I think yeah. of 
any film this year, or isn't it? Yeah, yeah, the biggest of the year so far. Yeah. Yeah. Which is insane. How much of that is attributable to this pairing up with Oppenheimer? I don't know, but surely, if people are making the double bill of these films, that can only benefit both films of both studios. Well, I think that they they ended up on the same date, sort of as like you know out of spite. But I think what happened after that is probably, if I had to guess, someone with the Oppenheimer movie production team was like, well, actually, let's just use that to our advantage. And I think that some of those, I, I'll bet they started to kind of uh, put out maybe some of those posters themselves early on, like maybe through some burner accounts, and then it became a thing. Then a whole bunch of people jumped in organically. But I do think that they had some part in this. Like I think it might be uh, like a little uh, insider, uh, inside job kind of thing going on here. But yeah, it's certainly everybody got in on it. And it is because it is so different because of that. It just makes it funny seeing like the combined posters and uh, that one image of Barbie with the hat and Oppenheimer with his hat, like where, you know, it's like a split poster. I think that actually looks pretty cool. And I think, you know, it got a whole bunch of people talking and uh, I think they probably had some hand in this because I think Oppenheimer definitely uh, benefited a lot more from this because I think the Barbie movie always was going to be pretty big just because of how many people have played with Barbies over the years. Yeah, yeah. So Matthias, you've co-hosted podcasts on a wide variety of directors, but where do you stand with Christopher Nolan, a director that many consider to be one of the best currently working today? Well, I mean, I've, let's see, because I've seen almost all of his movies. I think the only one that I haven't seen was like his first movie uh, following. But other than that, I think I've seen all of them. I usually like his movies, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not, the biggest fan, I tend to find his movies interesting. They usually have like a good idea and certainly like the Batman movies obviously are, you know, some of the best comic book movies out there. And I like that uh, Insomnia remake and, you know, the Memento movie with all the tattoos and stuff like that's pretty cool. I also really liked Interstellar. I think I saw Interstellar in Inception probably this year or like last year because I was catching up on uh, Nolan's. But yeah, I think sometimes it gets pretty complicated in there. Sometimes you just have to enjoy them as movies and not try to understand everything. And I know that people tend to get frustrated with that a little bit. And oh, of course, by people, you mean me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have heard uh, you say some things that were uh, definitely, I think, that made me believe you're not the biggest fan. Yeah, I've had my frustrations with him now. Mm. Right. I've not seen Following from 1998, but I yeah. saw Memento. I thought it was amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of his remake of Insomnia. Yeah, I like that one too. And as, as I've discussed on the podcast in, in you know across two episodes, I love Batman Begins. Yes. I love The Dark Knight. And i got to be honest, in spite of his flaws, I still really enjoyed The Dark Knight Rises. I absolutely love The Prestige. I thought that was really cool too, yeah. Same with Inception. So, you know, everything then up until 2012... I'm a fan of, even if you know, mm-hmm. I do acknowledge that, yeah, The Dark Knight Rises has got problems. And then for me, everything kind of fell off a cliff. As I've discussed mm-hmm. before on previous episode, and I think it was, you know, it was the Tenet episode that Neil and I did back in mm-hmm. August 2020. Unbelievable, that was three years ago. Mm-hmm. Interstellar, I've got big problems with, and, and that is a film that was aimed at me. That is literally like catnip to me. Because of the sci-fi scene? Yeah, in terms or? of the you know the, the stuff with black holes and wormholes and stuff like that. That, mm-hmm. that is just literally just stuff that I am obsessed with. And it had so many problems with it. You know, he made so many silly choices that just really irritated me and kind of spat in the face of the science that he was so diligently trying to adhere to. 
So what was uh, what didn't make sense about it? Uh, oh, well, again, like Neil said on the Tenet episode, I should do an audio commentary with him and just go <laughs> through everything that is scientifically inaccurate about that film. And I don't just mean nitpickingly inaccurate. I mean like mm-hmm. way, way over the top inaccurate just because certain things looked cool compared to how mm-hmm. they would actually look. And his depiction on screen of a black hole is is phenomenal and since that film has come out it has changed every kind of you know youtube video documentary and whatever you know the, the depiction of how a black hole would look mm-hmm. you know based on actual physics he made little changes to how they would look because apparently due to the way light is 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 kind of warped and whatever the mm-hmm. accretion disc around a black hole wouldn't actually look orange it'd look green but i agree with the change he made there because it, it's supposed to give the impression of heat Mm. And, and you know great energy kind of being expelled as, as, as matters like pulled around this black hole at incredible speed before it's sucked in and mm. his his choices there even though it's an aesthetic choice yes that makes sense but there are the big choices he made in the film which i just haven't got time to go through now and i think i alluded to quite a few of them in the tenet episode but moving on from interstellar you've got dunkirk mm. 2017 which i know is a lot of people's favorite modern war film but as Jacob Rivera and I discussed in our 1917 episode where we gave a rundown of our favourite war films and Dunkirk mm-hmm. came up, I've got quite a few problems with that film as well and I don't think it's anywhere near as accomplished as it could and should have been just because of some silly choices that Nolan decided to make. One choice which actually kind of mirrors a choice which he's made in Oppenheimer which we'll come to mm-hmm. later but he made a choice not to use CG in there to replicate the amount of soldiers which were there on the beach during the evacuations mm-hmm. and he had a couple of hundred maybe a thousand or two thousand extras when it should have been 300 to 400,000 soldiers on that beach if you want to see a more accurate representation of that actual moment in history just go and watch uh, go and watch atonement because there's that mm-hmm. scene that the kind of one tracking shot where James McElroy walks down onto the beach and I think it's maybe yeah I think it's about four and a half minutes long and that is a far better depiction of that than what we saw in Dunkirk. And then there's some other things like the way he messes around with time and some other things which completely defy logic. There's a lot of great stuff in it, but I just... And I also f- if it felt like emotionally hollow. It didn't move me in, in a way that a lot of war films have and... and you know, should and it didn't stir me. And, and right. I don't know, there was just something about it. And it, this is a criticism that a lot of Nolan's films have had about being emotionally sterile. And then I'm not going to repeat anything about what I said about Tenet. Neil and I filled an entire episode just pulling that film apart. I've not gone back to it since. I will. I definitely will. But again, big problems which have kind of plagued Nolan's recent films, like the sound mix and so much of the dialogue. Oh, I've, right. heard, I've heard people say as much as 60% of the dialogue in Tenet was just incomprehensible. And when you've got a dialogue-rich, exposition-heavy film right. like Tenet, if you're going to make a lot of that dialogue unintelligible, then you are going to alienate and piss off a disproportionate amount of your audience. But is it also not in the subtitles? Yeah, but you shouldn't have to watch a subtitled version of an English-language film if English is, is your true. first language just to understand yeah. it because he has got this bizarre thing of putting the, the score way up and, and bringing the dialogue mm-hmm. down in the sound mix. It just makes makes no sense but that is three films of his which i'm not a fan of but like i said there are many films before that in fact all of his filmography before interstellar i love i I think they're just great Mm. films so if anyone's going to accuse me of hitting on christopher nolan and and giving him a rough time then that's not really the case when you look at it on the balance of his entire filmography yeah it's one of those things where it's like oh i like the earlier stuff and then now it's it's a couple of it's a couple of rough ones in a row, and uh, but you're going to keep showing up for now and then hope that it gets better. Well, let's 
hold that thought because here we are with his latest film, Oppenheimer. Now, it's based on the 2005 book American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Schering, or sorry, Schering, which is a biography of the theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was put in charge of the Manhattan Project, the goal of which was to win the race to develop nuclear weapons before the Nazis and ultimately win World War II. Now, what was your level of anticipation based on the trailers we saw of Oppenheimer before you actually saw the film? Well, it looked interesting, but, uh, you know, as far as it, it just seemed more like, oh, this is like the first big, uh, like award season kind of movie that's coming out this year. And uh, I'm going to, you know, see what it's uh, all about. But the trailer did not, um, you know, the trailer, I think, just shows you a little bit of what the movie is. But I was going more for the fact that it's going to be an awards movie probably than anything else. Like, I always try to watch whatever the, the relevant movies are going to be, so I figured uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to get in on this. Well, you know, based on just the subject matter alone, and I, I'm fascinated with that whole period, you know, both World War II and then, you know, obviously things like the space race and then obviously the nuclear mm. arms race. One of my favorite films is 13 Days. Ah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Kind of 2000, 2001? Yeah, somewhere. That was in 2000. Yeah. That's one of my favorite films of the last couple of decades. I, I just think mm-hmm. it's, it's just superb. And, you know, friend of the podcast, Jim Cottle, he made a great sort of parallel to 13 Days almost being kind of like a companion piece to Oppenheimer. And yeah, because that one was more about the... that was. That was about the Bay of Pigs. That was about right. the the whole thing with with Kennedy and uh, the the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. But but it's that same sort of thing. I think the tagline for that film is "You'll never believe how close we came" or, or something mm. like that. You know, as in like to, how close we came to nuclear annihilation. And right. that's a big part of the plot to Oppenheimer is the fact that these scientists, these physicists, both theoretical and practical, and you know, from all over the world, brought together by the United States government to develop you know the world's first viable nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's that part of the film, you know, part of this, you know, the whole story and the you know the moral thing behind it from the point of view of certain physicists feared that a nuclear detonation would create so much heat that it would actually ignite the oxygen in the atmosphere. Right. You know, which if you sustain enough heat for long enough without it dissipating, then you could, yeah, in theory, ignite the atmosphere and you are then going to destroy all life on Earth. And that is, right. as the film states, that's a position that no one in the history of humanity has ever been put in. You know, they do some work, they, they run the, the numbers time and time again, and then it comes back to the thing of the chances of that happening are near zero. Mm-hmm. And again, this is moving way into the film, but as Matt Damon's character says, near zero, <laughs> not zero. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. Know, that was the risk they were taking. They didn't know with enough degree of certainty for a lot of people, <laughs> certainly not, you know, not the level of certainty that many would like that as soon as they pressed that button and detonated that, they did not know what would happen. At the end of the day, I don't think these bombs were, I mean, they were big, obviously, right? But the the idea that you could blow up the entire planet with one by accident, that's such a weird thing to think about. Yeah, it was it was more about the chances of it causing a cascade chain reaction mm-hmm. where, you know, kind of um, atoms are splitting apart, neutrons are firing off, hitting other atoms, causing them to split. And, and that, mm-hmm. something which would happen in, you know, milliseconds. And then before you know it, you know, you would have this huge cascade reaction which would travel throughout the atmosphere and that would be it. We would be gone. You know, there would be yeah. no coming back. The, you know, the atmosphere would take <laughs> thousands, if not millions of years to reject that after being completely burnt away. But we're here now. We're talking about it many years later. It didn't happen. But 
that whole thing, that whole question mark of what would happen when they press that button is something I think the film handles brilliantly. I did think that it was a bit of a strange idea that at a certain point they were talking about, well, is it enough to just say that we have it without dropping it, yeah. you know? But like, of course that's not enough. Like once you once you build it, you kind of have to use it because otherwise you might as well be bluffing. Like who's to say that you actually yeah, have it? exactly. And I think Oppenheimer knows that, doesn't he? He knows that it's not enough to, like you say, boast of having this weapon. It has to be demonstrated because if it doesn't, you know, like you say, someone else who's already developed it or about to develop it could be the ones willing to use it. Or they could just say they have it without yeah, having exactly and then we're in a stalemate no one wins the war and ultimately that was the whole reason why this team was put together to bring world war Two to an end by the time you know the nuclear weapons are successfully developed you know just after that initial first mm-hmm. test you know germany was on its knees at that point hitler was dead or believed to be dead yeah. and japan was in a position where a lot of people thought they would surrender but then a lot of people looking at the japanese culture and how they were just felt that they would never surrender if the war dragged on for another eight nine months a year it would have cost hundreds of thousands if not millions more lives and they made that decision to use the, the, the the weapons in order to force japan to surrender and ultimately completely end world war ii and we could talk all day about the morality of that but pushing that aside for a moment let's just talk about in terms of, of a, a film what do you think of the cast that christopher nolan has assembled for oppenheimer well i mean uh, yeah the, the one last thing though that i want to say is that it is a weird idea though to think that you're going to get peace by having this weapon then just everyone's going to want to have it though and they're already working on it so like that doesn't quite work in terms of the logic of that like it's why would anybody else feel safe anymore once you have this super weapon and they were already working on it obviously the nazis by that point were not a factor anymore but you know you already know that the soviets are working on it and they're going to figure it out sooner or later yeah which they did and look what happened then decades-long cold war exactly and you know how many tens of thousands of nuclear weapons developed thousands of nuclear weapons tested yeah and yeah it just still amazes me that all of these decades on we've only still had two wartime detonations or yeah anything other than testing yeah i guess because once you start using it again now other people also have them so yeah it doesn't quite work anymore yeah it's mutually assured destruction isn't it but as far as the cast goes i mean it, I mean, it's basically everybody and their grandmothers in this thing. I mean, it, there's so many people in this. Uh, and I had no idea, like, someone like uh, Casey Affleck was in this and Rami Malek and uh, Josh Hartnett shows up. Yeah, and, you know, the fact is that, you know, Josh Hartnett, who they, so many filmmakers tried to kind of push him as a big thing in the mm, early 2000s, yeah. but I think I think he's really good here. Yeah, I was uh, surprised by that. He was actually, uh, he was good. I think there's so many characters in this and because i've only seen it once and because it is quite a lot to take in you know our listeners are going to have to excuse me i'm not going to be able to remember most of the characters names hartner played ernest lawrence didn't he uh yes but again you know unless i'm like pausing and, and you know there's long moments of silence as i as i look at imdb yeah, me yeah. Too. i'm just going to be referring to the characters by the names of the actors yeah i think that's the easier thing to do unless you're like unless you're like a science buff who actually knows which scientist did what none of these names actually mean anything to most people no. so it, it, you know just uh, the actor's name i think yeah. is uh, the easier way to go in which case, then, I'm going to try and run through as much of the core cast as I can mm. without tripping up. So you've got, is it Killian or Cillian? I've always called him Killian. I think it's Killian. So you've got Killian Murphy, obviously, as Oppenheimer. Then 
Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Alden Ehrenreich, Scott Grimes, Jason Clark. Well, you got your Florence Pugh, Josh Hartnett. Kenneth Branagh, James Darcy. I didn't know that Safety brother would be in this, by the way. But that was another surprise. Yeah, in, in, in quite a you know, prominent role as well. Yes. Tom Conti, who played Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. That guy, Dane DeHaan, who uh, I, I, yes. I know this is stupid, but I don't like his face. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I, I see him, he just has that thing of like, uh, you you know what he's there for. Like he's like the hateable guy yeah. that uh, that you resent most of the time. Oh, Matthew Modine. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Best friend of uh, one of our good friends, uh, Adam sure. Rakoff. Gary Oldman cameo. Brilliant Gary Oldman cameo. Uh, David Dashmalian, who plays William Borden, the guy who is uh, put in to sort of um, go after Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. I like seeing uh, Tony Goldwyn in this. I always like him uh, yeah. when he shows up. Uh, Jack Quaid from The Boys, he's in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Remy Malek turns up in spoilers, kind of becomes one of the heroes of the third act. Yeah, that was uh, surprising that it went that way. I I mean, I knew they took his clearance away, but I didn't realize that... Uh, I, I didn't know as much about the Downey Jr. character, so I, I didn't know how that part of the movie was going to play out. Yeah, and someone really old school. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the Warriors, James Ramar. Yes, yes, uh, that was Kenny a surprise Stimson. too. Yeah, so you know it, it's a phenomenal cast, and and you know part of the joy of watching Oppenheimer is just literally recognizing so many of these faces that mm-hmm. just crop up. You know, some of them in really small roles, and others in prominent roles. Now, do you think it would be in this movie? Obviously, they're throwing all these names at you, and they're kind of expecting you know who they are, or that the you know that you'll trust the movie to show you their importance. I always wonder. Is it better to like have like a little thing next to them with the name of when when they first show up? Like, is there? I guess you don't want to pause the movie the whole time, but yeah, I always wonder what is the best thing to handle such a giant cast and all these characters where many of them are going to be unfamiliar. What what I appreciate that Nolan did here is he doesn't try to pander to the audience mm-hmm. and. You've got to put a lot of work in with Oppenheimer to get everything from it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't willingly give you more exposition than you need. And it, you know, you could be argued that it doesn't give you enough kind of character exposition. It mm-hmm. kind of leaves you sort of scrambling for, right, who's this character? What's their motivation? Yeah. What's their involvement in the plot? Um, right, okay, just as I'm processing, I'm introduced to another character. And, you know, it, it's just... For a film that's three hours long, it didn't feel the running time anywhere near as much as I thought. No, no, no. It went by fast. And I think you and I, you know, in our kind of off-mic discussion over the last few days, we've kind of hinted at the fact that there are a couple of subplots that could have been removed. Mm-hmm. But it's a question of which ones. Because even like, you know, the Florence Pugh subplot, given the fact that Oppenheimer had this right. tie to you know a staunch communist something which would then be the you know is kind of political undoing mm-hmm. you know, later on following the the success of you know, success in inverted commas of the manhattan project i think that is something you could remove but then the question is how much is it going to harm the narrative well it's not so much a question of removing things it's just shortening things so yeah maybe like shortening those- things yeah the, the sort of secret hearings about his clearance feel very repetitive. Like they're just asking him the same few questions time and time again, or, you know, it's kind of sort and they're asking him stuff they already know. So it just feels like you can definitely shorten that uh, and possibly uh, shorten those hearings with Robert Downey Jr. Cause it's more of the same thing of people justifying their own actions. But in reality, that doesn't have to be, 
uh, as long as it is. I actually, I was watching a podcast earlier today on YouTube uh, and they were reading user uh, reviews uh, or listener reviews of this movie. And <laughs> it was a really funny one that I think captures uh, some of this, but it, someone said, um, I've never fallen asleep in a theater before, but I came real close with this one, well acted and all, but it's so long and dull. Now, I don't agree with that. But uh, then he says, um, it's two hours of boring math stuff, one minute of boobs, why? 10 minutes for one test explosion, then another hour for political hearings, <laughs> which I thought was uh, kind of yeah. funny. I mean, it, I don't totally agree with the, uh, the time that he mentions, but I don't think it's just boring math uh, stuff. Although I will say I, I don't understand most of the, the science stuff uh, necessarily, but I'll I'll take the movie's word for for it that certain people are important. Like that's just kind of like setting up the stuff that you want to see. Yeah. But the sex stuff was kind of weird to see in this movie, and especially like that scene where all of a sudden uh, Killian Murphy is having sex with his mistress at a secret clearance hearing, like in sort of a like a hallucination scene. Uh, and I really wonder what what the idea behind that was. It just felt like very jarring compared to everything else in the movie. Yeah, and I've already, you know, seen on on Twitter a lot of comments about that scene uh, and about the fact that you know Nolan is is kind of he's kind of bending the rules, here, isn't he? Because the, the the film sort of snaps out of reality. Yeah. Don't know if it was necessary, but it's not one of the things that kind of stood out to me as as, as one of the film's big flaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I it just felt like that's a completely different movie that were all of a sudden in. But other than that, one other thing that I kept thinking is uh, Kenneth Branagh shows up, right, as um, I think a Danish scientist. And he's like doing, it's another thing where for some reason uh, in all these Nolan movies, he shows up as like a foreigner doing like a weird accent. I've noticed that like he does that, but also like Russell Crowe is in the funny accent phase of his career where he just shows up and things doing like a Greek accent or an Italian accent. And it's, it's kind of funny seeing them turn into like, you know, what someone like Armin Müller-Stahl used to be in the 90s, you know, some someone doing a non-specifically European accent. <laughs> Funny enough, Bill Scully said to me yesterday that Armin Müller-Stahl should have been brought in to play yeah. Kenneth Branagh character. I guess he doesn't want to do it. That guy is like 100 years old now. Yeah. But we said that the, the length didn't seem to bother us. Although, you know, I, I after a certain point in the film, I did become aware of the running time. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, how much longer is it going to go? And I think that was after the, the, the detonation scene, the thing that so much of the film is building up to. But beyond that, I thought then, well, how how long is it going to go on? And Yeah, I thought, oh, we must be almost done now. Yeah. And I think at two points beyond that, where maybe my interest was starting to wane, the film pulled me back in. Mm-hmm. And one of those moments was when Remy Malik's character steps into, but yes. I say testify because it wasn't a, a criminal hearing, but obviously, essentially, that's what they're doing. Yes. It's like a sort of character hearing, like an assassination of Oppenheimer's character. And when he was brought in, and the sort of little trick that, or the reveal of what his character was going to do, and Matthew Modine's character, mm-hmm. it was at that point where I thought, ah, right, okay. And the tables are turned again. There were two little. I can't. I, I forget specifically where the other moment came, but there were little moments like that that brought me back into the story. And by the end, you know, like I said to you, not long after I came out of it, there's a lot to process there, and it's going to take me a couple of days. And I, you know, I, I've had two days now to process what I've seen. There is though one big element of this film, and probably the one which I was most looking forward to seeing, mm-hmm. 
and it's the one that is my biggest disappointment and the, the biggest bugbear and maybe the only bugbear I've got with the film, the only major bugbear, and that's the eventual detonation. Yeah, I was starting to doubt whether I saw what I saw. When I <laughs> when I put it in the group chat and you guys were asking about it, I said something like, uh, oh, it's just mostly zooming in on like a big fireball. But you, yeah. And I kept thinking, no, that can't be right. But you saw it too, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, now, good. Given what I saw in the trailers, I was expecting him to do something absolutely mind-blowing. Now, Nolan, for some reason, just like he did with Dunkirk, he insisted on not using any CGI to replicate the first nuclear detonation, opting to use practical effects only. Now, as much as that tense build-up to the scene was brilliantly done, and it really was, the eventual explosion just didn't capture what a nuclear explosion is. It looked like a conventional explosion. Now, if James Cameron, back in 1991, can create such an amazing nuclear explosion sequence with practical and optical effects, then surely Nolan could have done better here than what he did. Given the fact that he made such a point of saying that, no, I'm not going to use any CGI here. This is going to be done purely practical. Mm. Now, I don't want to pull this little sort of one out of my pocket either, Matthias, right? But Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull Mm -hmm. from 2008, a film which gets a lot of flack, has a better nuclear detonation scene than what Nolan did here. And before people say anything about the fridge, put the fridge aside. (laughs) That is a silly character moment. But... What do we see, right? We see that big tower, that frame, holding the nuclear weapon up in the mountains with that um, artificial town way down below in the valley. Mm -hmm. We hear the sirens. Indy hears the sirens. He starts to panic. He realizes that the house that he's in is full full of mannequins. So he knows what's going to happen. Trying not to put too much emphasis on the fridge, but he gets into the fridge, closes the door, and then boom, you've got this searing flash, this intense heat, all the mannequins start to melt, much like they would in a nuclear detonation where the, the air temperature gets raised to something near the surface temperature of the sun, around about 5,000 degrees, and just basically incinerates everything within that initial sort of range. And then you've got a huge shockwave, which just blows everything to shit. Now, the one that we saw here in this film, it just seemed to be a conventional petrochemical explosion. Yeah. There was none of that sustained heat or that kind of mushroom cloud. It just didn't look like a nuclear detonation. And you can go onto YouTube and you can find hundreds of hours of... Well, yeah, just use archival footage if you yeah, have and, to. You know, that tragic accident that happened back in August 2020 in Beirut... Mm. the ammonium nitrate explosion. Yeah. That looked more like a nuclear explosion than what Nolan recreated here. And I'm not saying he needs to get a ton of ammonium nitrate and blow that up, but he could have done it out in the middle of the desert quite harmlessly, and it would have looked more effective than what he did here. And doing that build-up, and as it ramped up and ramped up and ramped up, helped along by Ludwig Göransson's really good score, I've got to say it. I don't know if it's one I'd like to listen to in isolation, but it's certainly one that helped the film move along. And then... When it happened, I thought that the detonations failed because the way this bomb works is it's got regular explosives outside a nuclear core. Those explosives compress that core, turning that into a different radioactive isotope, which then causes a chain reaction, which causes the nuclear part of the explosion. So essentially, it's one explosion, a conventional explosion, set up to trigger a nuclear explosion, I thought, oh, well, you know, the outer case of explosives has just gone off and the nuclear detonation hasn't happened. 
and it's just going to scatter all of this radioactive material everywhere like they said might happen and they're going to be in a bit of a shit situation mm. but no apparently then the detonation was successful but I, I just think it was just a really really strange creative choice and I think Nolan all you needed to do was to add in a few even if you didn't want to go digital mm. and, and computer generated you could have put in optical effects in order just to enhance that scene and to make it look like but does every nuclear blast have the mushroom thing or no yeah oh that's would. always uh because yeah. i thought if maybe you, that's because that's usually what you think of but a nuclear detonation like obviously that bomb when it, it didn't go off a ground level mm. if it goes off a ground level what it does is it kicks up a load of dirt and stuff as well which mixes with the radioactive material and it spreads more radioactive material over you know a wider space mm. so and, and what it also does is you would and again this all sounds really morbid but if you were to detonate a nuclear weapon at ground level in a city a lot of the radiation would be absorbed by surrounding buildings so right. the way they were it happened with Hiroshima and Nagasaki the bombs were timed to detonate higher than the buildings in order to have um, you know, the maximum destructive impact in terms of that initial heat blast mm. but it would still make a mushroom cloud oh, okay yeah and I was just I, I kept thinking well maybe maybe it's just me and I don't know enough about it because you know I think nuclear then I think you know mushroom cloud but that could just be because you're so trained to think of that uh, but maybe that's not always the case. So, you know, what do I know? But uh, yeah, okay. So I wasn't wrong. Yeah. The, these initial bombs which were detonated were of such a low yield compared to bombs which were later detonated. The, the, the biggest being the Tsar bomber, which mm -hmm. was detonated in the early 60s by the Russians, which was the biggest one that's ever been detonated. Yeah, this, this was, you know, small potatoes compared to some of the later ones. But still, it's just one aspect of the film that this is a three hour long dialogue driven film. The build-up to the detonation is brilliant, and I just think if the detonation had been something truly memorable and groundbreaking, then it would have been the perfect complement to these big swathes of dialogue and dialogue-driven story either side of it. And to me, Nolan's insistence on not using certain, certain effects tools has just kind of hamstrung him a little bit. Yeah, I don't know why he's so against that. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, if know. you look at the... Uh, have you, I don't know if you're... Uh, did you watch Twin Peaks Season 3 or no? No, but I know the scene you're right. talking about. Yeah, because yeah. they do a nuclear blast, and then it's this whole thing where he zooms in, and you go through the blast, and like through the giant cloud, and yeah. it's this whole thing, and it looks great. And I don't see why that's somehow illegal to do, but I don't understand that whole idea of oh, we have to do everything in camera, or why would you want that? It's like making yeah. it more difficult for no reason. <laughs> Yeah, and if he'd completely gone the other way and, and like fully embraced CGI, then he could have given us something that we couldn't conceivably ever see because so much of a nuclear detonation happens in a fraction of a second that he could have literally slowed a fraction of a second down to nanoseconds and he could have shown us in tiny detail what is happening in that nuclear reaction. Well, yeah, and also why not do it with this, but then in Interstellar you're doing it for the black hole, aren't you? Yeah, he, he used endless cgi in interstellar that's the only way that you're going to recreate a black hole mm. and up until the point he did it brilliantly and i just don't understand what this thing is where he didn't do it here because he, he used cgi in tenet 
Mm-hmm. You know, so much of that film just couldn't be done practically, yet it still, you know, in spite of my problems with the story, a lot of the action did look like you were seeing something real, albeit mm-hmm. a lot of the footage was you know, played in reverse. But right. I just don't know why he's got this occasional aversion to using CGI. And it seems to me as if it comes from a sort of pretentious stance of, mm. oh, I, you know, I don't need to use computers. I can do it all practically. I just It just seems like a bit of a strange choice. And this is... For me, and for my friend, friend of the podcast, Jim Cottle, who is just fascinated with this whole era, he has also said that the biggest disappointment for him for this film, and he really liked Oppenheimer, and he's a tough customer, but his biggest problem with it was this scene. Yeah, I also thought that, all right, so this is just like a pet peeve, but like I don't like it when in a movie there's like a big thing that you know makes a lot of noise, but then they cut out all the sound and then mm. for dramatic effect, they, they put it back in later in the scene and then it's like twice as loud and they did that in uh, during the blast scene. Yeah, I gotta say it. I, I thought that there would be so many more kind of little stylistic slights of hand and choices that Nolan would be playing. But I think overall, and you know, there are quite a few he plays at the end when he, he's looking around, um, you know, the people who are all assembled just to kind of applaud mm-hmm. his work and, and, and the work of the team. But he is seeing in his head the horrors of what he's unleashed right. in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he sees one of the girls that stood in front of him and her face is all kind of burning off. Right. But even that just doesn't look like it should. And, you know, we've seen the footage. We've seen the footage of the aftermath of Mm -hmm. Hiroshima and Nagasaki with horrendous burns victims. Flesh just basically peeling off. And it just seemed to be a bit tamer for a film. And and all credit to Nolan. For the first time in a long time, he's made an R-rated film. Dunkirk was a bloodless war film. You go back and watch Saving Private Ryan. Mm. Watch Band of Brothers. And you see the gut-wrenching carnage that Spielberg and, you know, the, the showrunners of Band of Brothers put on screen. It's unforgettable. It just really hits you in the guts. Whereas Dunkirk was just completely bloodless. There were soldiers on the beaches getting blown up. They were flying up in the air. They were landing intact without a limb missing. Mm. The only, I think the only blood the scene is in one scene where there's some bandages on some soldier's chest and we see some blood seeping through and that is literally just it. Yeah. I, I don't see, you know, much as Jacob and I said in our 1917 episode, why did... Nolan insist on you know, a PG-13 rating for that film. He could have gone harder. Credit to him with Oppenheimer. He's not trying to pander to the studio and get more kind of backsides on seats by making it a more family-friendly rating. Got to give credit where it's due. I wonder if that works, though. We'll see. I think we'll see how the box office goes over the next couple of weeks for this film. I get the feeling that now that we've had Indiana Jones 5 and it's Oof. failed miserably, <laughs> and we've had the, the latest Mission Impossible, uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1, which I don't think has been... I was a little disappointed with that one. Yeah, I think don't I don't think it's been as successful as people were expecting, but I think now we've got this weird phenomenon of Barbenheimer coupled with so much good word of mouth and, and reviews that Oppenheimer's getting. Mm-hmm. I do, it's not it's not going to catch up with or match Barbie. No way. No. But I do think it's going to have a sustained box office. I think it's certainly going to do far more than the $100 million budget. Because even like Robert Downey Jr., who would usually command $20 million paycheck, he's cut down his fee to, I think, $4 million. In fact, let's just talk about the performances. Because I think come award season, Robert Downey Jr. is going to be in the running for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Yeah, I think so. But I've got to say it, Matthias, 
I think the star of the show, without doubt for me, is Killian Murphy. I think he's phenomenal. He's obviously the character around whom this film is centered. He's the character we spend the most time with, but I just think his performance is just absolutely outstanding. There's a lot of great performances in this film, and I'd say second to him, you've got obviously Emily Blunt, and then you've got Robert Downey Jr., but I think Murphy, I think he has to get a Best Actor nomination for, for Oppenheimer, because I just think it's an absolutely outstanding performance, and I just forgot that I was seeing this actor who you know, is one of Christopher Nolan's sort of um, darlings and turns up in, I think, pretty much all of his films. But I just thought he was brilliant. Yeah, I think he was good. I I think his face does a lot for him, right? Um, mm. And with all the close-ups and stuff, I think it makes it look good. But I don't know if I would say he was brilliant in it. I would have to see it again to see what he was doing but it he definitely was good in it i will have to say i also say that i felt like robert downey jr was towards the end he it seemed so weird that this whole thing that he had against uh, oppenheimer was really just the fact that he felt like oppenheimer didn't respect him enough because he they keep saying like oh i was a shoe salesman and i'm not an actual scientist and these people don't respect me and it just felt like the whole thing was so petty and, and it wasn't based in anything uh ideological it was just him feeling slighted and i don't know i i guess i thought there was more behind it or i would have thought that there was more behind it and then near the end it just starts to feel like oh so you went through all this trouble just because you don't like the guy like it, it felt so silly yeah and you know ultimately what's he trying to do he's trying to stop oppenheimer from getting his security clearance uh, renewed but yeah he does go to great lengths doesn't he he, he really does positioning all of these people who are essentially putting him on trial yeah i, I agree I, I think it's a little bit disproportionate to that sort of wrong that oppenheimer did him years before I also thought that the moment that they keep showing uh, of him meeting Einstein, I, I thought that would be more than what it was. I had a feeling that the conversation that they had that we didn't hear until the end was not going to be about Lewis Straws, as he says. It's not mm-hmm. Strauss, is it? it? It's pronounced Straws. Yeah. I had a feeling that, no, it's not going to be about him at all because I think you're coming across as a bit of a self-important prick and actually their conversation is more going to be about the morality of that thing which Einstein knows that Oppenheimer and his team have unleashed and the long-term effects on the world of that. Or, or something along those lines, which ultimately it, it did turn out to be. It, it wasn't about Danny Jr.'s character. Right. Wasn't the point that, like, once you start working on this thing, the whole world changes because now everyone will want to have this weapon and you're going to have to make more of them or, like, some worse bomb. And uh, in a way, I think he's saying, like, don't even start doing this because it's a bad idea without saying that. I agree, yeah. What do you think of the look of the film? Because the cinematographer on this, Hoyt Van Heidemann, mm-hmm. is he's lent some of my favorite films of the last couple of years. He's one of our guys, huh? That's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of cool seeing a Dutch guy who's involved in all these big uh, productions. He worked on Spike Jones's Her, a film mm-hmm. which we've covered on this podcast, one of, one of my favorites of the last, yeah. certainly of the last 10 years, which gorgeous looking film, absolutely stunning. Yeah, I like it. He did some incredible work on, on Interstellar which, as much as I've got some issues with the film, there's no denying that the film looks absolutely phenomenal, as mm. did Tenet, you know, and as did those aerial photography scenes in Dunkirk. They just look incredible. And another one which I've seen recently, which I've only in the last maybe two, three weeks, as I was you know, going through the list of films I've missed over the last couple of years, was Ad Astra. Ah, oh, I the, like that one a lot too. Yeah, the James Gray sci-fi film starring Brad Pitt, which mm. uh, Van Hoytema lensed, looks 
absolutely gorgeous. So yeah, he's he's a superb cinematographer, and I, I just think as much as and, and this film did look fantastic. Mm-hmm. A lot of those stunning vistas of you know the the American countryside just looked incredible. Like a few people I've spoken to have said, and I think was it was he that said you know or, or maybe John Armino <laughs> said, do you need to see uh, countless scenes of people talking in rooms in IMAX? You know, well, big yeah. thing has been made of the IMAX photography. I think a certain black and white film stock was developed specifically for the IMAX format mm-hmm. for this film. I don't know. I didn't see the film in IMAX. Um, I wish I could have. But... There's barely any IMAX screens anyway. So yeah. how many people are going to see this in IMAX? Probably not that many. Yeah, isn't the whole point of IMAX that it's really wide? But No, it's no, it's it's the opposite. It's actually really high. You know, I, I saw the standard you know projected version of this film, which would have been in 2.35 to 1 aspect mm. ratio. Or... Right. Well, two two point three nine to one, and then the the standard seventy millimeter prints of that would have been in two point two to one, which is slightly higher and less wide. Then you've got the standard IMAX, which is one point nine to one, which is again taller and more in line with. It's actually slightly taller than a standard HD TV ratio of one point seven eight to one, and then you've got the full on IMAX which is 1.43 to 1, which is a much squarer ratio, and you're getting much more picture, image, top and bottom. So the explosion being more vertical, we would have seen more of that actual explosion or more detail of it if we'd seen it in the the, the 70 millimeter IMAX. And we would have seen probably all of it in the, the, the digital IMAX as well. But in, in the the wider, longer, more narrow 2.39 to 1 projected version of the film, we would have been missing out on quite a bit of image detail top and bottom in certain scenes. Mm. So it's possible that the... Um, but it's not possible that, like, let's say we missed part of what was on screen uh, because of the wrong aspect ratio. It, it's not possible that that's where the mushroom cloud was. Well, we, yeah, we would have missed out on image detail there because if he'd... Well, but again, I, I, I've never heard of this being done before mm. where you film different versions of a shot right. for... For different uh, ratios. Yeah, for different ratios. I don't think that would have been done. That would make sense, though. I mean, it would, you, yeah. Yeah, and, I, mean, I mean, especially if you know that most people are not going to be able to see it in IMAX. And I imagine that once you watch it at home, uh, you're also not going to see it in that ratio, right? But at home, you would see it when, when it comes up inevitably on blu-ray and 4k mm. instead of being 2.39 to 1 in those imax scenes it will be a compromise ratio of 1.78 to 1 mm. so it will fill the frame entirely of that widescreen tv so you won't have any black bars top and bottom mm. so again that's another aspect ratio uh, sorry to our listeners to make you know this <laughs> confusing we really do need adam rack off here now to, to post on twitter one of his oh, uh, yeah, fantastic yeah. you know aspect ratio tweets which fully explains aspect ratios to people who might not have a clue what we're talking about yeah, those are but great. It, it's all to do with the relative height and width of the image that you're seeing and the version if you didn't see the imax version you would have seen a very rectangular picture whereas if you'd seen the imax one it would have been taller and more square with additional footage or, or visible footage top and bottom of what you actually saw in the standard version. And that might be the most technical we've ever got on Film 89. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I would think that each version, or at least that you would send out maybe different versions to fit in whatever the theater is or according to what their screen size is. You know what I mean? Yeah. But before we go and uh, lose half of our listener <laughs> yes. base because we're getting so technical, what do you think of 
Emily Blunt's performance as Oppenheimer's wife Kitty. There wasn't a lot of her, as far as I remember. Like, I there's obviously like the big moment where she's in the security clearance room uh, or hearing uh, where she's defending her husband, and she's like really uh, giving Jason Clark a run for his money, uh, much more so than her husband, who he, you know, he kind of gives up more or less in the hearings. I don't think he really tries to uh i don't know it just felt like he already he goes in but he it seems like 10 minutes into it he's like oh i see what this is this isn't this isn't going anywhere like this is a you know i'm definitely losing this and she goes in and she you know she actually fights for him which like that was her big moment but the rest of the movie you don't really see her all that much yeah, and I think we're kind of maybe not given enough insight into what a character's going through. We're kind of shown it as opposed to being told it because clearly after they have their first child, Oppenheimer's obviously absorbed in his work. Mm-hmm. He's probably really home when she's trying to bring up this baby. And obviously there's that scene where he comes home, the baby's crying right. in another room and she's there drinking. And, you know, that's the first clear sign that she is really struggling. Mm. And life must have been so hard for bringing up a child essentially on her own. Yeah, and, you know, to me then there seemed to be a strong hint at you know certainly postnatal depression brought on by the circumstance of the fact that she is essentially a single parent, and again this is back in you know the nineteen forties. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks as if she's trying to do everything on her own. Well, I imagine back then for a lot of women it was like that, right? Where they were doing most of the work anyways, yeah. and like during mm-hmm. the day the husband is somewhere else, and you know you're just sitting in there with your kid all day. Yeah, I think a lot of women probably had that. Yeah, definitely, without doubt. And I think that aspect of the film comes across really well, and I thought that Blunt played that superbly. Of course, it doesn't help that you're on a secluded secret base somewhere. Yeah. And then Matt Damon's character of Leslie Groves, the um, you know the sort of military side of things, I, I thought he was really good. Yeah, I thought he would be in the movie more because um, uh, Bill and I watched this movie, Fat Man and Little Boy, about yeah. the creation of the bomb uh, like a month or two ago. Is that with Paul Newman? Yes, uh, yeah. And that's really a lot more about uh, the relationship between uh, Groves and Oppenheimer. So I, I guess I thought that he would be in this a lot more. But because of the way the movie is structured and so much time goes into the hearings uh, about the security clearance and the confirmation of Robert Downey Jr.'s character, there's really not a ton of space to, to fit Matt Damon's character in there. No. And the other little bit I said, the following the detonation, the other little sort of story point that brought me back into the film was the Senate aide played by Alden Ehrenreich. Yeah, he was good Solo in this. himself. Yeah. Was that little turn at the end when he turns on Danny Jr., who I think he's kind of had an idea as to the fact that he's not a particularly scrupulous guy. I liked him and I liked his turn at the end. I thought that, that kind of all worked really well to the downfall of Downey Jr.'s character. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he didn't have a name. Uh, almost like, uh, I wonder who he's supposed to be, like if he is maybe based on certain characters. But I think what happens is um, he does all this work to try and get Downey in. And then he finds out that Downey Jr. has been doing some stuff behind the scenes and he doesn't like that. And then at the end, we find out that like one of the people that voted against him was um, JFK. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But I think uh, he probably has done some work behind the scenes to kind of sabotage his boss because he doesn't like the fact that he's so corrupt. 
because I was just prompted to go go into um, IMDb just to get the name of Matt Damon's character, who you'll have to excuse me, uh, listeners, I, I'd forgotten. There were so many characters to kind of remember in this film. Mm-hmm. But my eye then was drawn to the two things: the release date. You know, I, I said, you know, when was when were these films released? And it just goes to show how messed up my sense of time is sometimes. At the time of recording, it's now probably twenty fourth of July. This film has been out for three days. Yeah, it, it feels released. a lot longer. Although yeah, here it was, it was released slightly. Uh, earlier because i saw it on thursday so that was uh yeah the 20th yeah the netherlands yeah. july 20th yeah the uk was friday july 21st as was the united states so the you know the general release in the biggest audience was july 21st three days ago the film was made on a budget of 180 million dollars so far three days on bearing in mind we're not even going to get that is not even going to count today's figures mm. it's already got a worldwide gross of 174 million that's after three days yeah so I think this film is gonna it's gonna do well. And before we go into our final thoughts, then do you think this film deserves to do well? And would you like to see it do well? Yeah, I think uh, I think it will do well. I think it should do well. It, it's a good movie. Uh, there's some nitpicky stuff about it. Like uh, early on, they're in uh, the Netherlands, right? And um, yeah, uh, they say he's speaking Dutch, but. Mm-hmm. I got to say, to me, it sounded more like he was speaking German, but yeah. maybe I misheard it. But, you know, you couldn't really hear much of it. Like he said, like one or two sentences, but I thought that was a little weird. But um, I, I do wonder now that all the attention is on Barbenheimer, I wonder what that's going to do for Mission Impossible 7, which I did think was a bit disappointing. But, you know, I wanted it to do well and I want this one to do well as well, just so we can get some some of these movies or like 13 days or like these more historical kind of movies that are not just, um, you know, the simple biopics about like some, some random person, but more, you know, historical event, uh, movies. I would like to see more of them or just in general, like more historical dramas or dramas in general. Well, let's wrap things up, Matthias. Let's give our final thoughts and our scores out of 10 for Oppenheimer. I'll go first, right? Because our little inner circle of close friends who talk on an almost daily or at the minimum bi-weekly basis on film, you know, via WhatsApp, Uh a few of those friends are going to be expecting me to hit hard on this film because they know the last couple of Nolan films I've really not been a fan of and I've gone hard at Nolan because of those just frustrating choices he's made those films being Interstellar Dunkirk and Tenet but I asked you did, did you do you think this film is going to be a success and do you think it deserves to be my own answer to that question is yes and yes I think it's going to be a big success and I think it deserves to be I think this is there's an argument for this being Nolan's best film I don't think it is I still think that's a tough one uh, The Prestige is a damn good film. The Dark Knight is a, a masterpiece and Inception is a really good film. But this film was a pleasant surprise. It's a return to form by Nolan and apart from that thing that the film is built into that ended up being so much of a damp squib, that detonation, that explosion, if that had been done in a way that completely blew my socks off and didn't have me like sort of scratching my head thinking, what did I just see? Much as you said, you you, you felt the same as well. And it took me to confirm that, well, yeah, no, you actually did see that. Mm-hmm. Aside from that and a few other elements, you know, I said maybe there should be entire scenes removed. I, and yeah, you've put me right there because I think what you suggested that there's just an overall trimming of repetitive scenes scenes of the the hearing which just labored home the same point if they'd been cut out and if you removed 10 maybe 20 minutes from this film just tightened it up a little bit i think you would have had 
a better film. But as it stands, I thought it was superbly acted. I thought the cast the cast was just phenomenal. It looked stunning. Ludwig Göransson's score really did help the film, and it wasn't like Hans Zimmer's score for Interstellar, which dominates the film to the point where it's just like, just shut up, <laughs> get you know, take your fucking hand off the organ, because there's just scenes where you just seem to be mashing this electronic organ, and it's just it's just a cacophony of noise. This wasn't like that. This was an effective score. I think. It throws up so many moral questions and things to chew on and things to discuss that it doesn't give you a verdict. It doesn't say, this is what happened. This was right. This was wrong. It just gives you all of this stuff and it lets you come up with your own conclusions. And it is a film that is made for adults. And again, maybe that's why he went for the R rating and for fuck it, let's just go all the way. And credit to him. I knew it would take me a couple of days to digest it and to form in my head an opinion and to sort of deal with certain problems I had with the film. But I think it's a really good film. It's not for everyone and it's friends of mine I know who are just not gonna have the same interest in that period and in and in you know this the, the whole thing that this film's about. I think they would just lose interest and they would struggle with a lot of the things in there. That's no disrespect to them. That's just you know they, they were part of my brain which was struggling to take in everything that I that was being thrown at me. But it did maintain my interest far more than I thought that three hour runtime would and coming out of it and I've had two days to digest it. I'm going to give Oppenheimer at the moment, and again on the second viewing that could change, but I'm going to give it a confident 8 out of 10. I think it's going to do really well and it's going to deserve to do really well come award season early next year. I was also thinking uh, an 8. Uh, so we're, we're in agreement. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I think could have been shorter, but and also I would like to see a movie that's maybe like 13 days, but about where you see more of the political figures having that sort of backroom discussion about dropping the bomb or not. Because I don't think we really got insight into like what the president is thinking. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we do know that essentially Japan was already willing to surrender pretty much. Uh, of course, there is the question of like what that would have looked like. I know that there were some pretty extensive uh, changes to Japanese society because of surrendering uh, and the way that America made them uh, like do things like have the emperor uh, admit that he wasn't actually a god and things like that. Uh, so there, there were definitely some some big things on the table there, but I would like to see uh, something like that in the future, maybe. But maybe we'll get it because of something like this, you know? Maybe yeah. we'll get like a good HBO miniseries or an HBO movie out of it. Well, look, Matthias, one of the things we've lamented, you know, in our regular discussion about film amongst ourselves privately is the fact that for a long time now, you know, cinema's just been dominated with an increasing amount of shit. <laughs> and... We've had to, we've had a couple of bad ones uh, this yeah. year. Yeah, we've had a lot of franchises just run into the ground to the point where we're all pretty much sick of them, and you know they they started to lose money for the studios now, and they're they, they're no longer you know financially viable. You know, along comes a Barbie film, and mm-hmm. you know a film about some quite niche subject matter, and both of them are doing extremely well. They both seem to bizarrely be feeding off each other in this insane chain reaction, which is just, I don't think anyone could have predicted. Mm-hmm. Let's just hope, Matthias, shall we, that this is the turning point. And coming from the several years of bad times that we've had, you know, in 2020 onwards because of the pandemic and whatever, and then the financial downturn, let's just hope that this is the, you know, the explosion that can sort of kickstart the chain reaction that can just get cinema back on its feet like it was in pre-COVID times and you know just get us away from so much of this franchise stuff which just really from a personal point of view I'm just tired of 
Well, and also let's hope that this whole um, writers and uh, actor strike resolves pretty quickly because otherwise they're going to push yeah. things like Dune Part 2 back and maybe even, uh, you know, some of the other award season uh, type stuff. And then it's just going to be bare until the end of the year, maybe. So that would uh, that would suck. Very selfishly, I say that. And I certainly hope that, uh, you know, they, they reach some sort of an agreement that's fair because some of the ideas that are being floated about, like, essentially buying someone's identity and then uh, using it in perpetuity so they can have free extras and things like that. That's just insane to me. Yeah. And I got to say, Matthias, now I'll go on record, right, that before certain people, friends of ours, accuse me of, of having too much of an about turn, I'm nothing if not fair. And I'll, I'll always be fair and honest. And the biggest criticism of Christopher Nolan I've had with his last three films isn't the execution, it's in the writing. Mm. And this film was written solely by Christopher Nolan. And it is brilliantly written. Yeah, I felt like at least I knew what was going on in terms of like the, the science part of it. I don't think they were too, uh, they were making it too difficult for all the people in the back, like myself. Yeah. Uh, so that was, uh, <laughs> that was helpful. And you know, Matthias, the biggest compliment I can pay this film isn't one from me personally. It's just an observation I made. Mm-hmm. When I saw this film the other night, sat in front of me was a, a group of maybe seven lads who all seemed to be aged between 16 and 18. Not what I mm-hmm. thought the core audience for this film would be. And oh. for three hours, they just sat there in silence. Right. And I thought, oh, great, why do I have to be sat behind these? But they did not make a sound. That tells me, given how British audiences are, we're not ones to be you know, up in our stood up at the end clapping. We are sometimes frustratingly reserved. But their reaction told me that they enjoyed that film. And yeah. That, for me, just is as much of an indicator of, of what a good film this is. Well, you definitely walk away think, uh, and you're kind of thinking about the film as you leave, which is, uh, which is nice. Not a lot of movies have that. So there we have it, Matthias. That is a review of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. It was an 8 from you. It was an 8 from me. So that's a film 89 verdict mm-hmm. for Oppenheimer of 8 out of 10. Put that on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> Put it on the Blu-ray box. Yeah. Put, it on, put it on the 4K release. In fact, when both studios come together and release like a, a double bill of uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer, they can put it on there. Yeah. But before we wrap things up, obviously you've done Barbieheimer. You've seen both. Which one's the better film? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say this one for sure. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but I will say I also had fun with the Barbie movie. There's definitely some stuff in there that I really liked. Yeah. So that's it. Thank you, Matthias, for finally coming on. Uh, this has been far too long in the making. It's been an absolute pleasure just uh, you know dissecting this film with you. And uh, this is going to be the first of many for you, me, and you know the rest of the team. We're, gonna, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to do it a lot, you know, a lot more often. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. There's uh, plenty but, of great movies to talk about. But where can people find you on social media if they want to discuss films, television, or um, how to actually pronounce Paul Verhoeven? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, I spent most of my time on Twitter, really. So uh, I'm at Matt R. Says. And speaking of TV, I've, uh, over the last week and a half, I've been watching a lot of um, uh, The Righteous Gemstones, that uh, Danny McBride show, and his other show from before that, which is called Vice Principles. And that stuff is hilarious. Like I love both those shows now. Yeah, Danny McBride, he's brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. So, and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and you can find Neil, Steve, the rest of the Film 89 crew on Twitter and Facebook at Film 89 UK. 
Thank you to everyone who came out in support and sent in questions and sent us positive messages about our recent 100th episode. That was just really humbling and made Neil, Steve and I kind of blush. It was um, it was quite heartwarming. And we hope you enjoyed that episode. Next episode, that'll be maybe in a, a week or two after this one. Yeah, I'm just going to leave that as a surprise, but it's already in the bag and uh, I'm sure that all you guys and gals out there are going to enjoy it. But that's it for now. Stay safe, be excellent to one another, but more importantly, stay classy. (laughs) Beautiful.